I knew at the moment I was standing on the sideline, we were going to the Super Bowl because I had made that kick in my mind the night before, mental trained it, seen it in slow motion, in real time. So it was a foregone conclusion. I just didn't tell anybody. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have an extraordinary guest today, Morton Anderson. He is the exemplification of the American dream. We're going to get into his story, but as a 17-year-old foreign exchange student, he discovered in his first week in America a talent that changed his life forever. He had a remarkable career in the NFL, and he's the only player to hold statistical franchise records for two teams. He played in a record 360 consecutive games scored, and in 2006, he became the all-time leading scorer in the NFL. These days, Morden has been delivering keynote presentations for a wide variety of groups, including corporations, sports organizations, charitable organizations, and CEOs. Drawing on stories from his 25-year NFL career, he can deliver a motivational speech on leadership, teamwork, and achieving goals that will motivate and inspire the audience. Morden, thank you so much for the show. It is awesome to have you here. Good to be here, Dr. Rich, and uh, looking forward to spending some time with you. This is going to be a fun one. I I left a couple points out of that intentionally because your story is such an interesting one, your journey to America and the NFL. So let's start there. So you were a foreign exchange student at the age of 17, brand spanking new in America. Tell us where you came from and, and what happened then. Yeah, I was born in uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. Back in 1960 and uh, 1977, when I was 17 years old, uh, living on the west coast of Denmark in a little fishing village, uh, having played soccer and team handball and being involved in in gymnastics, my parents thought it might be a good idea to broaden my horizon and and go abroad for 10 months, learn learn English and immerse myself into the American culture and, and just spread my wings, so to speak, for a little for a little while. I don't think they had anticipated that uh, 40 some years later, I would be sitting on this side of the Atlantic versus uh, closer to them. And that was challenging as I went along. But um, as you mentioned at the open, uh, this is truly, I, my, I am a true shining example of the personification of the American dream and of having an opportunity and, and seizing that defining moment and and going for it uh, with no fear, and uh, so at a young age, I mean, at, at age seventeen, we don't we're not fully baked, and uh, you know, there's some time in the oven left there. So, as far as maturity, I, I wasn't, uh, you know, and I didn't speak the language, so there was a, certainly a, a fair amount of risk there. But the selling point to my mother after. I had been in the country for a few months and realized that I may have an opportunity to stay was was simply to tell her, I can always come home if it doesn't work out. And uh, 
this is something I really wanted to do. So, you know, it was a, it was it was a wonderful uh, feeling to know that you know I did have the backup from home and and that this this opportunity was in front of me and I went into it with open eyes and and ears and uh, you know it turned out okay. I'm presuming the opportunity opportunity you're talking about was the chance to play Division One football at Michigan State. Is that fair? Yes, and it, yes, I mean it started in high school. Obviously, my introduction to football was initially a couple of days after I arrived in the United States, speaking no English, having no friends, and moving into an American family with four kids. And the introduction to football was literally, "Hey, we don't have a soccer team on our on our foot on our high school, but we do have a a really good football team, and they were very good. Uh, but we don't have a kicker, and so one plus one." Foreign exchange student, soccer background equals kicker on the high school team, and that's exactly what happened. and And then it went pretty fast from there. I I figured it out pretty quickly. Had great help from the head coach Bob Wilbur and and my teammates, and had eighty new friends right away as soon as they saw I could kick that football. So that was a a great way to to get immersed into. Uh, as a teenager to get immersed into society and to, to that community was through sport. And I can't think of a better way to be part of a team right away like that. And uh, it made it made the transition coming from Denmark into a foreign country so much easier. And, and where was this? Where was your host family? Yeah, they were on the west side of Indianapolis. Uh, we, I went to Ben Davis High School. It's a big high school on the west side of Indianapolis. And we lived over there and my father, my host father was the vice principal at the school and my host mother was a teacher at a, at the elementary school and all kids would go, you know, all the kids had gone through Ben Davis. One of the oldest daughter was off to Purdue University and and the three other kids were coming up through the Ben Davis school system. So, uh, or the, you know, that county. And so, yeah, it was uh, everything, all activities. My My whole day was pretty much, Devoted either to 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 schoolwork and but then activities surrounding uh, the school, whether it was uh, in choir or gymnastics team in the winter or track team in the spring or football in the fall. I was basically there from six in the morning till eight at night. And so you went in there at seventeen. So were you a junior at the time when when you arrived, or was this your senior I was, year? I was finished, so okay. I had an extra year. I was finished I see. at home. And, and how how long did it take you to to pick up the English language and really you know I know you immersed yourself in it pretty quickly because they didn't speak Danish so I had no choice <laughs> uh, so I was uh, I was thrown into it and um, invited it and you know made mistakes obviously and there were cultural differences that I had to kind of wade through you know the prom of just inviting in Denmark when you go go out you don't really date. Uh, it's more we go out a big group of people and then you figure it out from there. So I invited three girls to the prom. That didn't go over well. <laughs> they, uh, they they lined me up and said, "You got to choose one." This is America. We don't. You can't bring three girls to the prom. I said, "Well, I like all three of you, and we could all have fun. We'll just go as a group." And I explained what I just told you about the cultural difference, uh, but it, it didn't fly at all. That's really funny. And and then talk to us about what the recruitment process was like you for, for college football. Did you have a lot of offers? Were you kind of flying under the radar because of how new you were? What was that like? 
Well, we, we were very good. The Ben Davis Giants went all the way to the semi-state. We, we won 11 games. We lost one at the end. <clears throat> but I was uh, recruited by, obviously, by Michigan State, my, by Purdue and some smaller schools. And the whole family, the Baker family, had gone to Purdue University. So they were obviously uh, leaning or trying to guide me to, to go there and be a boilermaker. But I think the deciding factor that, that uh, put me at Michigan State was that they had a Danish kicker named Hans Nielsen. Hans Nielsen was literally less than two hours from my hometown in Denmark. And so when he came down and started recruiting me and speaking Danish with me and on my official visit at East Lansing, it was a done deal. I knew I was going to Michigan State because if Hans could do it, I could do it. And so there was just a level of comfort right away. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. I wonder if they hadn't had a Danish kicker, if you would have wound up at Purdue. I would have probably ended up at Purdue. How interesting. That's really wild. And talk to us about, just briefly, what your time was like at Michigan State as a kicker and, and what it was like you know, being now you know, one of the best kickers of all time, but you didn't know that then. What was, what was that like for you over there? Those were formative uh, years of my life, those four years. Very powerful, dynamic uh, learning environment. Uh, Michigan State has 44,000, 45,000 undergraduate students. It's a, it's a city within uh, the town of East Lansing. So it's, it's a huge campus. It's beautiful. And it's, it's multicultural, multi-ethnical, very, uh, very diverse, diverse group of people on a fairly, in a fairly small area. So I really enjoyed that environment. Uh, have, coming from, from a foreign country myself, I could relate to these other students, and I think uh, Michigan State has students from 40, 50 countries. So this was not unusual f- to me, and uh, I kind of embraced that environment of, uh, of diversity and uh, really enjoyed it. And then, of course, the sport was the big stage. It was the Big Ten. So you were not, no longer playing in front of a 1,000 people. You were playing in front of, in the case of when we went to the big house in Ann Arbor, we were playing in front of 105,000 people. And at Michigan State, 74, 76,000 people in Spartan Stadium. So that environment was, uh, you know, was conduce- conducive to, to increasing your adrenaline and uh, the intensity of the experience uh, because just the sheer number of spectators and, and the noise surrounding Big Ten football. It was a very exciting time. Any particular memory or moment that stands out from your time at Michigan State uh, above all others that was really special for you? Well, graduating, and I actually came back after my rookie year with the Saints, and and going through commencements in May was special. Uh, I had a double major, double minor, so I was not quite able to finish. I had 12 credits left, and I came back after, like I said, after my first season as a professional 
professional and, and finished. And that was so gratifying, but just the fall Saturdays playing ball, uh, you know, big, the, my last game, my dad was there and my last game as a senior and, and just understanding that what it flew by, it really did, you know, those four years. And I have a son now, my oldest son, uh, who was a freshman at Michigan state. So he's up there right now. I said, son, when you don't blink, cause it'll be, <laughs> you'll be graduating and then, and off to find a job. So it was just a real powerful experience. I think the mo- maybe the four most important years of my life were at Michigan State because I learned to become a young man. I I became fully baked there, you know, and I and it formed my opinions and and the knowledge I took away from the experience uh, has has helped me throughout my my company and my nonprofit uh, foundation. And we're definitely going to spend some time talking about what you're doing now. I'm wondering, you know, when you were at Michigan State, at what point in your collegiate career did you think you had a chance to be at that next level to play on Sundays in the NFL? I think after my junior year, I had a pretty good idea that that people were starting to look at me and that I had the skill set to maybe perhaps at least get an opportunity to play on Sunday afternoons. And at that I became an All-American my senior year, so so I was trending the right way, and and my performance was, and and that's how you want to you want to go out your senior year. I mean, I couldn't think of a better way to go out as as an All-American and the top-rated uh, place kicker in the country, and it did turn out to be true. I was the first kicker uh, drafted in in the in 1982. I was taken in the fourth round, so. But I think in my junior year, I started understanding that uh, this could become a profession for me. And I and I can't remember the exact number, but I, I read that the average playing career of an NFL player is less than five years for, for most people. Did you see this as something, you know, kickers probably have a little more longevity because they're generally not getting knocked around to the same degree as, you know, a linebacker or running back. But uh, did you think once once you got drafted and once you got to New Orleans that this was something you were going to be able to do for as long as you did it? No, I was putting one foot in front of the other, quite honestly, Dr. Rich. I wasn't trying to to project how many years. I was just trying to literally make the next kick. Uh, and my career in New Orleans started very poorly. I had a, a dismal uh, I had a dismal preseason. I think I was three for twelve in preseason, four for twelve. I could kick it a long way, but they weren't going through the uprights, and that was a real problem. And I had to figure it out pretty quickly. And really, on my very first kick, opening kickoff of the 1982 season, my first kick as a professional, I got hurt. Uh, it was a guy, Randy Love, that ran after me on the opening kickoff. And as I had al- always done in high school and in college, if somebody's running uh, towards you who's bigger, faster, stronger than you, you run the other way. And that's what I did. And I tore my ankle, mm. tore my ligaments in my right ankle and uh, was out for eight weeks. Then they, a player strike came and um, actually was a, kind of a blessing for me because I was I, it gave me time to heal. And uh, they brought in Tony Fritz, was an, an older kicker. and. He kind of taught me the finesse of the field goal and not to kill it all the time, but to really find a target line and hit it down the target line. And when the strike was over, Tony retired. I think he was 30, almost 40 years old at the time. He had played for, you know, had played for Bum in Houston. So when he retired, I knew it was my job. It was sink or swim. 
And uh, in 1983, I really had a breakout season. I had about three or four game winners. And at that point, I, I think I realized, okay, if, if I can string together some, some consistent performances here, I have a chance to, to have a long, and stay healthy. I have a chance to, uh, you know, to have a long career. But I remember the first game winner. It was against Chicago in the Superdome. It's a 40-yarder, 41-yarder, and uh, just the ecstasy of that and, and wanting to have that again. And, of course, then we, we strung a whole bunch of them together, and it was, it, it was pretty powerful. And that, that builds confidence for sure when you're able to, to make a difference in those defining moments. I've often read that being a kicker with the game on the line is the most pressure-filled role that anybody can play in professional sports and, and maybe goalies will take issue with that during, during yeah. some death but close um, baseball. <laughs> in terms of mindset what is it like to be on the field in that moment when the game is on the line and, and then what are some of the things that you would do in that moment to manage manage your emotions and stress and feelings yeah it's a good question and it, it it requires a rather lengthy answer, I'm afraid, because there's, there's no easy way to that. But let's talk about the notion of pressure first. I think the way I look at pressure now, and when I was younger, I was really, like I said, I was kind of winging it. But the way I looked at pressure as I got a little bit more mature and had more of these experiences is it's a, it, the preparation is everything. So, you know, the more you can bleed in peace, the less you bleed in war kind of mentality, meaning do all your homework Monday through Saturday and then Sunday for three hours, it should just be fun and you should be able to go out there, be an athlete and let the game play you. A lot of athletes make this mistake of trying to force themselves on the game with, with a lack of patience. I think the most important thing as a high performer is to, to understand that you have to do your homework, you have to own your workbench and you have to diffuse these so-called pressure situations simply by increasing your skill set and and your mental uh, capabilities of handling those and it can be it can happen through breathing verbal cues but also through sheer discipline and routine pressure happens when your skill set doesn't match the task so where's the pressure on a 38 yarder from the left hash because you've done it over and over and over again so I revert back to the workbench. You have to identify, and for a kicker, the workbench is very simple. It's that little area where the ball is being put down. That's your workbench. You have to identify it. So we just identified. Now you have to train it. Well, how do you train it? You repeat over and over again. And the secret sauce is to make your positive behavior dominant. That takes time, that takes discipline, and that takes repetition. Because what happens is when you start developing good habits and training good habits, they become dominant. And they push all the other noise that I call white noise out of the way. And as long as you realize as a high performer that there's two things you control and everything else is white noise, you're fine. The two things you control, effort and attitude. Everything else is really irrelevant to the task at hand. And so once I figured that out, once I was able to put it into you know, a disciplined structure, how I was going to prepare, how I was going to go about doing this, and I became very methodical 
I am not a field kicker. I'm a methodical kicker. I kick down the target line with a wide plant and and I, I strike the ball hopefully the same every time with a vertical ball flight. Those things you can control. That's your workbench. And you get found out if you're not, you know, if you're not spending time on the workbench, you find out. And we can relate that, Dr. Rich, I mean, to any walk of life, the workbench, to, to understand that we have to identify our specific workbench, then train it. You know, for, I would think for, for a teacher, certainly would be understanding the subject matter and being able to communicate that to your students. That's your workbench to motivate and to inspire. If you're a public speaker, to motivate and inspire, but to know your subject matter. To become a SME, right, a subject matter expert. Well, you, you can't phone that in. Just as in the high-performance business or in the military, when you're in basic training and the world is stuck, you better have the skill set trained to the point. But you can't make, mistake, make, make mistakes as, as a soldier. That's life and death stuff there. And I've dealt with a lot of the special ops guys and talked to them about high performance. And, and without question and without exception, they all say the same thing. We are so well-trained that we can do this stuff. And the four, you know, the four levels of learning is important to understand. And, it, and the highest level there when you can do something intuitively is unconscious competence. That is the highest level of learning. And that's as a high performer, that's where you want to get to. So I, I told you it was going to be a long answer. <laughs> it was an awesome <laughs> and, answer. You and, know, there, and there it is. <laughs> some refer to that that highest level of learning as muscle memory, but that's exactly what you described. Uh, and I and I certainly want to want to transition us into what you're doing now. But I just have a couple more questions regarding your football career. You became the all-time leading scorer in New Orleans Saints history along the way, and you then decided to leave to go to the Atlanta Falcons, which was shocking for so many people because the Falcons and the Saints, I think they probably both fan bases would agree that each other is the team they like to hate the most. And so, you know, the fans have this, you know, furious rivalry with each other. How much does that translate to the players? You know, obviously you went to your, your team's biggest rival. You know, is, is that something that players buy into? You know, do, do the Saints hate the Falcons and, and vice versa? Or is it just... That's just for the fans. Like, what, what was that like, you know, when you made that transition in that regard? Well, I, I do think that when you play a division rival, there's a little more intensity because those division games are important. But I want to clarify my exit from the Saints to the Falcons. They had, the Saints had actually wanted to cut my salary 40%. Oh, they, oh wow. It was in the beginning of salary cap. Nobody really understood it. But all they saw is a, a kicker making a million dollars and saying, we want to take him to 600. Well, that, I didn't think that was fair. I had performed at a high level, and uh, so I, I refused, and then they released me. And you, have, you get a sheet of paper when you're released, when you're fired from a football team. They have to give you a reason. They checked the box of declining skill set. That bothered me greatly, because, and I kept that, I kept that paper. Uh, I kept that note. I didn't say anything. I didn't go public with my anger and my bitterness. I simply went and, and got another job in Atlanta. And then in 1995, which was my first year with Atlanta, I said, uh, I said, and I, first of all, the next 10 times we played New Orleans, 
we won. We were ten and zero against New Orleans the next five years, and six of those I I beat New Orleans on last second field goals. Wow! And in the process, set uh, a couple of NFL records. One against them, I kicked three over fifty yards in a game. Um, and for the season, I set a record for fifty yarders uh, in that year. So I remember uh, after we beat them in the Georgia Dome. I think it was a late season game in 1995. On Monday, I faxed that sheet to the Saints. I I faxed it. I circled it and signed it. And I I made a a little arrow up to a declining player. And I didn't say anything. I just faxed it right to their their office. Holy smoke. (laughs) That's really wild. And and you did have uh, an exceptional career with the Falcons, including uh, that famous kick against Minnesota that got Atlanta into the Super Bowl for the first time ever. Yeah, that was a fun one. Um, and that's where my training really took over. It was a 38-yarder in overtime. Uh, and as I was standing on the sideline waiting for, uh, you know, waiting for the last kind of play to run, because we knew we were just setting up to win the game. I was looking down the sideline and all my teammates were on their knees holding hands. I said, man, they don't think, uh, they're not thinking too much about this. They, they're looking for divine intervention here. I knew at the moment I was standing on the sideline, we were going to the Super Bowl because I had made that kick in my mind the night before, mental trained it, seen it in slow motion, in real time. So it was a foregone conclusion. I just didn't tell anybody. And then when I went out and kicked it, of course, as soon as I hit it, I knew it was good. I started running and running away from 80 guys that were trying to crush me. So it was an amazing experience and uh, one which I had hoped two weeks later we could have uh, we could have done again in the Super Bowl. But that, that was not to be. But just the experience of being part of a huge game like that and and and, and having the impact on a city and a team was was a very powerful, uh, positive uh, experience for sure. And uh, phenomenal. And uh, I, I want to revisit the question of declining skill set. So that that sheet there. Um, at what point did it start becoming apparent to you that you know your football career was was nearing an end? I would say, um, well, not really until the very end, two thousand and eight. Uh, I was preparing for my 26th season. I had just finished my 25th season with the uh, my last year. It became my last year. I had had statistically the best year uh, on field goals. I was 90%, I think, or 92%. I think I missed two kicks all year. But I wasn't able to kick off anymore. I was having knee pain on my in my plant leg. And when I went back in March to try to prepare to become you know, to go for the 26th year, I simply, I couldn't recruit the power anymore. Um, and I tried, I really did. Um, but my knees were just, uh, they were used up. You know, I, this was repetitive motion injuries to the point where I just could not go a 26th year. And I didn't really tell anybody, but the phone didn't ring either. So it finally, in December of 2008, I decided to uh, to call it and retire. And that's when I announced my retirement. Did you have an idea what you were going to do after? Uh, you know, that, that was a very difficult 
time, those 18 months, those first 18 months, two years. And thank God I had an understanding wife who kind of uh, guided me through that because I did I did kind of uh, wallop around in uh, in self pity for quite a while. Looking back at it, what a what a waste of time! But uh, and how disappointing I was kind of now looking at how I handle that situation. But there is the reality is there is a huge void uh, left when you leave the game that you played for so long, and this can I think is relatable to CEOs and to military, you know, soldiers. When they've been in combat or overseas in a theater or CEO who sits in board meetings and makes decisions and travels and has the power to change the company's direction. And, you know, for me, the structure of professional football was was something I really embraced. I really liked. And all of a sudden that's ripped from under you. And now every day is Saturday and you can only play so much golf. I mean, it's sooner or later <laughs> you're, you're going to start hating golf. And so, you know, it became a real challenge to try to wake up every day and say, let's have a productive, uh, inspiring day, not only for myself, but for others, instead of just kind of getting into this uh, rut of, uh, well, I'll just have a couple beers, you know, uh, early afternoon. I mean, it just turned into a vicious cycle. And, and uh, you know, I did get some help, actually, and kind of uh, ciphering through it and uh, really was helpful. And it was encouraged by my wife and I'm glad because I'm sure I was not fun to live with. I know for a fact that it was probably going to, our marriage was going to end if I didn't change. And, and she did give me that ultimatum and, and thank God she did and opened my eyes to, to the fact that what a, what an awesome life I had had. And there's so much more to give and so much more out there. I think once I wrapped my, my arms around that and understood that there were lots of people that cared about you, and that football didn't define me, which I never thought it did. But I really was surprised how much I missed it in the locker room and the guys and the game day. I really missed the adrenaline. There's no other place you can get it, you know, that I have found. You know, standing in front of a thousand people live and talking, that's pretty powerful. And the adrenaline gets going. But it still doesn't compare to, you know, two seconds left, down by two, we got to have three points. I haven't found anything that can replace that. And yet, you know, now today you're doing so many things that, that help people talk to us about, you know, what, what you've been doing since football and how you're making a difference. Well, I probably spend 70% of my time in the nonprofit arena now through the Morton Anderson Family Foundation. We were inspired, my wife and I, when, when I was in New York in 2001, and we saw firsthand what happened during 9-11 and the attacks not only on the World Trade Center, but also the Pentagon and Flight 93 that went down in Pennsylvania and that whole environment. That inspired me to want to help not only first responders, but our, our special ops soldiers and their families. And that's when we created the foundation. We've been doing it now. Uh, we've We've been in existence, you know, as a 501c3 since 2009. And, um, you know, I, I do a big golf tournament here in, uh, in, Atlanta. I'm in Atlanta every year. We've raised almost a million dollars the last seven years. Um, we, we donate the money. 50% will stay in my foundation. And the other 50% will go to Operation One Voice, which is a local organization that specifically helps the SOCOM special ops and their and their they they recognize and they identify 
specific cases through SOCOM's Care Coalition. Uh, it's not my expertise. I'm a fundraiser. And then we, we, the reason we don't have millions of dollars in the foundation is we raise it and we give it away. And I think that's really, to me, uh, the point of having a nonprofit is to do just that. Um, what our motto is: "What you give will grow; what you keep will perish." And we're we're very proud of the work. We also work with the Boys and Girls Club. We work with lots of uh, schools and their athletic programs. So we support a variety of Michigan State uh, local kids going to Michigan State on scholarships. We help Atlanta kids get get up there and help them. So we do a variety of things, and uh, we're proud of that. Part of it is the military uh, arm, but also we do lots of youth-related uh, charities uh, locally here, and it's been uh, it's just been absolutely uh, wonderful, uh, very gratifying, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a good way to spend the day, and you feel good when you put your head on the pillow at night that you've done something, hopefully, that has changed uh, somebody's life. Outstanding, and I and I know that you are often on the road as a keynote speaker. Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, I just really, you know, as I'm sitting here talking to you, Dr. Rich, I, it, I just feel like there's so much information that I've acquired over the years that's worth sharing and takeaways that are really meaningful, not only if you're an athlete, but in the high performance business, or if you're a salesperson, or if you're a, it doesn't really matter. The universal language of, of personal excellence can, can travel anywhere and can be received anywhere uh, in any medium. And so I'm just happy to be out there telling my story, hopefully inspire a few people to, to not be afraid to go for risks, to, to try to, you know, if your dreams, I, I have a, you know, a saying, actually it's not my saying, but uh, Jim Craig, who was a goalie, an Olympic goalie, hockey goalie, told me, I thought it was a tremendous quote about dreams. It's, if your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. And I really like that. You know, I say trust your hopes, not your fears. Uh, those, those are important, you know, and we have lots of quotes we can throw at people. But if, if they're not backed up by real life experiences, they don't mean as much. So to me, uh, you know, every, every person and the greatest gift we can give to each other is hope. Somebody out there who may not have the same platform or the same ability to, to do things, if they have hope, they have a really good start, starting point. I love that. That's so beautifully said. What's next for Morton Anderson? I want to continue to inspire and motivate and to just be a, a good father and husband and a good, good, you know, Samaritan, if you will, just to do good work and to live a life of purpose, uh, purposeful life with intent and with passion and with energy. I love it. Morton, we are at time. This has been a phenomenal discussion, as I knew it would be. As you know, I, I like to wrap up my show by asking my guests one single question, and that is, what is your biggest helping, the single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing us talk today? Yeah, it's one simple word. It's will. Uh, and the will to do the distasteful. Um, it's not when your hands are in the air that you improve the most. It's not when everybody's applauding you and tapping on your shoulders and attaboy. It's when your back's against the wall. It's in the world of suck. It's in that moment where you realize that you have to go and recruit some traits that perhaps are not pretty, 
but they're necessary in order to get through something. And within those traits is a very small word, word that's so important, and it's will. The will to do the distasteful, the will to go places others may not want to go. But because you have the will to go there, you will be able to absolutely fly into that rarefied air of personal excellence. I love it. Morton, where can people find you and your charity work? So my website is uh, mortonanderson.com. It's pretty simple, www.mortonanderson.com. I'm also on Twitter at greatdaneforever2544. And I have Facebook and Instagram accounts, Great Dane. I think it's the same, Great Dane Forever. I think it's uh, with the number four. So we can find me uh, through any of the social uh, media platforms and also on my website. Outstanding. And we will have everything Morton Anderson in the show notes for your episode at thedailyhelping.com, as well as on the Daily Helping app available in the iTunes store and Google Play. Well, Morton, this has been incredible. You shared so many pieces of wisdom, and I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you for coming on today. This was awesome. Thanks, Dr. Rich. Have a good day. Thanks, you too. And I want to thank each and every one of you who chose to tune in today and listen to our discussion. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for someone else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. 